You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Hey, morning. I, um, I'm not teaching today. Uh, Jack Thorne is teaching today, but I did want to come in and kind of introduce this series. Um, introduce this series and then hand it over to Jack. But uh, this class, what's the title of this class today? Is it uh, Gospel Identity? That's, that's good. Yeah. The, well, the series is Gospel Identity. This is a five-week series. And this class, if you've never come to it before, is, um, is the Faith and Family class. And so what we do with the Faith and Family class is we are... Uh, trying to help parents, first off, understand their kids, understand the, the world their kids live in. We're trying to help parents communicate with their kids, understand where their child is developmentally, uh, and communicate with them. And uh, it, within that, uh, we're trying to help parents spiritually invest right. in their children. Right. It's uh, it's one of those things where you know the Bible says that the church and the parents are are like two sets of pastors, two sets of spiritual leaders, walking side by side. Um, and yeah, and it's a very intimidating thing for parents sometimes to spiritually engage their kids. And so, uh, so with that being said, churches historically have done a terrible job of giving parents tools with which they can spiritually invest their kids. Because you don't have to be a seminarian. You don't really have to be a hyper, hyper mature Christian to do a really good job of spiritually investing in your kids. And so, uh, so anyway, we're going to give you some basic tools. And so the, uh, this series, which as I said, runs for, uh, runs for five weeks, is based on what our theme is in the youth group this year. Uh, it's still going to be relevant uh, no matter what age your child is. But uh, our theme this year is called Gospel Identity. And basically, we're talking about a gospel identity as opposed to a performance-based identity, which in the flesh we all live in a performance-based identity. And, and Jack is going to talk more about gospel-based identity versus performance-based identity today. But we, um, we it's funny, you, you may or may not be familiar with this term of like a catechism. Catechism is a tool that churches have used you know, throughout the centuries, uh, and and which the Jews used before, um, to in order to educate spiritually educate kids. And so it's you know question and answer. So you know if, um, especially if you have a younger child, you know you know you ask, the first question of the catechism, the children's catechism, is who made you, God? Uh, why did God make you for His glory? So on and so forth. So. So anyhow, with that being said, we've developed um, a gospel identity catechism um, that we are kind of immersing uh, our teenagers in during this year. And the gospel, uh, the gospel catechism goes like this. The first question is, uh, and again, we're our concern of what we're communicating to the kids is it doesn't matter what other people say you are. It doesn't matter what you think you are. What matters is who God says that you are. So the first question is, uh, who does the spirit say you are? One who is washed and clean. Second question, who does Jesus say you are? One who is forgiven and righteous. Who does the Father say you are? One who is an adopted child of God. Who does God say you are? A sinner saved by grace. And so our hope with this, we first off, we have an Instagram feed. And so we're like popping those questions up on Instagram all the time. For our kids to see to remind them of this truth because we all know that our you know the natural inertia is for us to move towards a performance-based identity um, and so we constantly need to be reminded of who we are in Christ who the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit say that we are and so our hope with this is we have on the website 
um, a bunch of images that we would encourage you to download. And these images are those catechism questions uh, in an image that you can bring on your phone that you can text to your child if your child is at an age where they can receive a text message. And so if you know that your child has you know, dance tryouts at uh, dance tryouts at you know three o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon. You could text your child. Who does who does the, who does Jesus say you are? One who is forgiven and righteous to remind them of their their identity in Christ. And um, and so so anyhow and, and also too like you're in the car and your child is fretting about something. You'd be like, hey, wait a minute. Who does God say that you are? You know, and you're a sinner saved by grace. So this would be you're basically you we're we're hoping that we'll give you a practical everyday tool where you can kind of help your child remember who they are according to God's grace and not who they are according to the world and according to their performance and according to their sense of inadequacy and so on and so forth. So I encourage you to go to the website and, and download those images and also just to memorize it yourself so that you can, that can be a part of the DNA and like the rhythm of your household. Um, the, the Jack has the opening class today that will kind of introduce this concept of a, a performance-based identity versus a gospel-based identity. And then we'll have four classes after that, uh, one you know, addressing who the Holy Spirit says we are, one addressing Jesus, one addressing the Father, and the other addressing, uh, addressing who God says we are. And, um, and yeah, so that, that's what it will be for the next uh, five weeks. So I'm going to pray for you, and then I'll hand it over to a, a, much, a much better... You about said much... Everybody get that? Yeah. Clear as a bell. And, and, and the microphone doesn't lie, right? Um, all right, let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, uh, I pray, um, pray for our children. I pray for all of us, Lord. I pray that we would find ourselves not in our performance, um, not in our successes and failures, but we would find ourselves uh, in the righteousness that you've given us, that we would find ourselves as children of God. And uh, I pray that our, our, this would be something that our kids really internalize in their hearts and that they would walk into the freedom and the peace uh, and the joy and the hope that comes uh, with knowing who they are as, as a sinner saved by your grace. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. All right. Thank you, uh, Cameron. All right. Identity. The question of our identity, that is, who am I and who do people say I am, drives us our entire lives until we die. And how we answer that question and how our children answer that question determines how we live and whether through the gospel we live eternally. So, so make no mistake, this class and the succeeding iterations of it are not about uh, how to raise uh, nice or polite kids. It's much more urgent than that. It's about whether we and they are going to live or die. Okay. Now, what does the gospel say about identity? Scripture is full of discussions, usually questions, about identity. Like in Mark chapter 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And then with regard to John the Baptist in John 
chapter 1, we see, So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I, and the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And a significant portion of Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome involves questions of identity, performance, life, and death. Romans chapter 7, Wretched men, man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? All right. What do we mean, though, exactly about identity? Well, here's how it happens. When you go to school, the new school year with your child, or when you go to the first swim meet or the first football practice, and you're standing around in a line with other, or along the fence with the other parents, what are the questions, if you don't know them or don't know them well, that immediately surface? What are, what are the questions that come up? What do you do? Where are you from? Where do you live? That seems like idle chatter, but it's not idle at all. It's very, very urgent. Why is it urgent? Because when we ask those questions of other people, we're trying to get a sense of where we are in relation to them, who they are, at least who they think they are, and how we can function with them in the larger landscape. Now, identity also has a broader political and civic meaning that we're, it's kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about this morning. We've all heard, for example, about identity politics. Or we may hear somebody say, uh, I identify as an Asian American woman. When that person says that, what she's probably uh, saying is, I experience creation, I see things and I understand myself as a result of a series of, 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 of biological and, and ethnic and historical um, events. Now that's sort of another boat in the same river we're talking about, but, but, but this morning we're talking about something a little more retail, a little more uh, personal. We're talking about your child's identity. Well, how does your child get his or her identity. Well, how do you get your identity? How do I get my identity? Because in large part, theirs is going to spring from ours. Okay. Now looking around, you know, I think most of us grew up in an environment that is a largely post-industrial economy where there's a great deal of social mobility in a largely stable legal and constitutional um, system. There may be exceptions, but I doubt anybody in here or listening to this class and the recording uh, has been subject to uh, genuine starvation or forced migration or has had to live under a lawless or authoritarian regime of daily oppression. I say that because people who are in that category their identity is survival. Who am I? I am alive. Okay. We are in a little bit different situation. By the grace of God, we're freed from those considerations. And that freedom is a wonderful thing, but it comes with sometimes a terrible price. That freedom comes with a terrible price because it often drives us to 
identify ourselves with our performance, which then becomes a legacy, with all good intentions, we instill in our children. And that, that freedom drives what Cameron calls performance-based identity. That is, our performance in life, our grade, so to speak, on the report card of existence is not just an independent thing, but it actually becomes uh, me. So let's take a concrete example. Me. I love to talk about me. Okay. So I'm a lawyer. I'm a man without hobbies. I do not hunt. I do not fish. I do not play golf. As one of my law partners asked me, how do you make your wife mad? My identity, at least, or especially when I screw up and get outside the gospel, is wholly driven by my identity as a professional. It depends entirely on the perceptions of and feedback from my partners and colleagues, judges, clients, adversaries. That becomes, again, when I slip up, and stop paying attention, my identity. So let's talk about this in the context of uh, the, our children. This problem of performance identity is exacerbated by the fact that we love our children. We, we want them to do well. We want them uh, to take advantage of that mobility that we talked about a moment ago. We want them to be stable, strong, uh, prosperous. We want them to lead. We want them to have a passion about something. And if it's a passion that sticks, we will move heaven and earth and we will spend billions of dollars, right, to try to get that done and to make that dream happen. So how does the dream start? The starter fires his gun and we're off. Classes, teachers, counselors, uh, PTA meetings, which set the gospel aside, they should distribute free heroin at those things, <laughs> right? Um, that that if if um, uh, if if our children are rude, we send them to to manners coaches. If they're not big enough, strong enough, fast enough, we send them to D1 or to other personal trainers to see if we can get that done. If they're struggling academically, or maybe if we want to give them a leg up athletically, we hold them back a year in school um, and we get them involved in church they go on mission trips and little small groups hoping it will have some good effect but but really we're just checking that box because we think that's going to help them perform and that's going to help their mobility and why do we do it because we want them to be able to perform we want them to be able to succeed and if they don't perform well they won't get advantages later and if they don't get advantages later they will be stuck. And that's the last thing you want your kid to be, is stuck somehow. The problem, however, is that performance requires judgment. It doesn't matter how lovely the routine is of the figure skater at the Olympics. At some point, the Chinese judge is going to hold up the number and render judgment. And if I am judged wanting, and believe me, in the last 56 years, I have frequently been judged wanting. Then my identity also 
is wanting. My identity is also insufficient. I haven't just failed at a particular task. I have failed self itself. And there's really nothing more destructive than that. So judgment, of course, is a function of law. It's what law does in part, is judge. That's what God's law does. That's what man's law does. And it establishes a norm to be respected. And if we respect it, we're rewarded. If we transgress it, we are punished. Well, performance functions in exactly the same way as the law's judgment does. In fact, it's synonymous with it. When I wake up at 3.15 in the morning, I promise you, it is rarely to praise God. When I wake up at 3.15 in the morning, it is because I'm worried or fearful in some way, directly or indirectly, I have failed, that I have been found wanting, oftentimes professionally, sometimes in some other, some other context. This, if we proceed outside the gospel, is the legacy that we provide for our children, again, with the best of intentions. But with the best of intentions, we are doing, as Johnny Cash once said, nothing but fitting them for a dead man's suit. So how do we how do we avoid all this? We avoid it with the gospel, but that is easier said than done, um, and it is hard, if not offensive, sometimes. Let's take an example. Our former dean, Paul Zoll, once gave a sermon about law that really stuck with me. Paul said, although there are many mansions in our father's house, there are only two rooms in our lives. A courtroom and a hospital room. A courtroom and a hospital room. Now, what did Zoll mean by that? Uh, getting in the mind of Zoll is always a precarious <laughs> path. Well, what he probably meant was that if we lead our lives by law, if we are performance-based, that will, in fact, lead us to two places. First, it will lead us to the courtroom. That is, the place of judgment, where we are judged by our peers, where we are judged by our friends, our work colleagues, our employers and uh, employees, uh, by our social friends, by, uh, by our spouses and family members. Um, we are judged constantly. We live in a, just like, just like fish and water, we live in a sea of judgment. And most importantly for this morning, so do our children. And then secondly, I think Paul meant that during our life, we're in a courtroom where we're judged. And unless our lives are uh, ended suddenly by, by violence or other mishap, we, all of us, will sicken and die. And our children will sicken and die. So either we will end by violence and mishap, or we will end in sickness and death, but there is no, pa uh, no pass otherwise. Now, Woody, Woody Allen has a routine about it. He always thought God would have an exception for him, right? There are no exceptions. Now, this is in part, or to many people, an offensive notion. In fact, when Zoll gave that sermon, there was a lady in the pew in front of me who I've known for a very long time, a lovely lady who muttered under her breath something to the effect of, well, there are... There are Lots of rooms in my house, and they're filled with flowers. 
That is a lovely sentiment. It is sentimental and false. There may be many rooms in our Father's house, but there are not in ours because we are sinful, because we are fallen. And when we try to correct that through performance, through our identity, we not only fail ourselves, but we also fail our children. All right, so what are some of the, the, the takeaways? If you're like me, when you come to something like this, you want, you know, a manual or a checklist or something that's got, you know, is magnetized so you can go stick it on the refrigerator, right? Or something you can unfold and kind of give the kid and say, hey, read this, be better, right? Um, I'm not going to do that, A, because I don't have one, and B, because uh, manuals and checklists are just sort of a nicer sounding version of the law and of judgment. When you think about it, a checklist on the refrigerator can be terrifying. It can be soul-destroying if you take it literally. So there may be a few concepts, though, that might help us through this. One is, as parents, it's incumbent upon us to begin thinking about the gospel in the daily fabric of our lives, not just at church and rally day and Sunday school. Um, that that, that it, it, it needs to begin to become the cloth that, that the entire family is wrapped in. So what, I, what might that process look like? And actually, I probably just kind of lied because I'm actually going to give you four points. They'll make you feel better. You can take four <laughs> things away. All right, the, the first concept is before we get to the children, we've got to get to ourselves. And we have to understand the gospel. We are useless to them in this regard if we don't get it. It's like the, it's like on the plane when they do the announcement and they say, you know, the event of a lack of cabin pressure, you know, the, the mask will drop down. Take care of yourself before, you know, putting a mask on the other, you know, because they don't want you like gasping for air and dying while you're trying to deal with putting the mask on your child's face. Same thing here. We need to put the mask of the gospel on our face first and then deal with them. Not try to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of beyond that. I'm just going to focus on, on them. So we need to understand for ourselves, and forget about it being a parent for a moment, just for our own salvation, for our own life, we need to understand who am I? Do I have an identity in Jesus Christ or do I have an identity in something else? And why the one and not the other. And then secondly, once we get that under our belt, so to speak, it's incumbent on us to talk the theology of grace all the time and not just here or not just leave it to Cameron, as wonderful as the staff is here. That after Sunday school, on the way home, do we say, what would you talk about? What did you understand that to be? Did you agree with it? Is that right? Why is it right? Because if the child, just like with us, can, can start to understand not only what she believes, but why she believes it, she will start to move towards identification with Christ and away from an identity that is something else. And by the way, if you ask those questions, we need to be prepared to be able to answer them if it comes back to us. Okay. Also, not just in the head, but in the heart. 
we need as parents to live a theology of grace. By that, I don't mean that you got to read great, big, thick German books. By that, I don't mean we need to kind of walk around with sackcloth and ashes or look particularly holy. But what we do need to do is model the gospel. They pick this stuff up just like they pick everything else up from us. So we need to ask ourselves, do we model the gospel? Do they see us pray at home? At dinner, when grace is said, do we actually talk about what is in the words of whatever version of grace we say? Do they see us do something in some church ministry? Do they see us go to a small group meeting and, and, and actually looking forward to it, not just to get out of the house away from them? Which also has that salutary function as well. <laughs> Are we modeling an identity that we want them to benefit uh, from? Um, and when we fail, when we fail, when we fail at work or in business, when we fail in our relationships, when things are not great with the spouse, when something else happens, when somebody dies, do we model a, a gospel response or do we model something else? Because as everybody in this room knows, they're watching. And they're watching very closely. And then, and then finally... And this sometimes is the hard, hardest part, I think. We don't need to be afraid of all of this. People say, well, I don't really have time, or I'm not prepared, or I don't feel prepared, or I'm not a theologian, or whatever. And we tend to be afraid of it, or we think, this is going to be too heavy for my kid. You know, he's too young, or she's too sensitive, or, you know, she's you know, bright enough, but she's not going to get all this stuff. We just got to kind of keep, it, keep things at a comic book level, or whatever. And we're afraid to engage because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the reaction is going to be. We don't know what the end result is going to be. But we need to get over that because we know what the end result is going to be if we don't. Right? It's going to be their death. They will not receive the gospel. They may have a great life on the outside for the next few decades, but that will be it. So we don't need to be afraid. Children, even small children, can handle the theology of grace in particular and theology in general a lot better than we think they can. They get it. I used to teach or help teach the junior high Sunday school. Most, and by the way, whoever thought that putting together 7th and 8th graders in small enclosed spaces was a good idea is an idiot. So we, we teach 7th and 8th grade. Most of the curricula for Sunday school at the junior high level that are available are just abysmal. They're, they're either law-based completely or sentimental, and it's terrible. So we created our own curricula year after year. In one semester, we, we made one for Romans. Several parents were aghast. Even some of the professional staff here was like, eh, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty heavy lifting for you know, 12-year-olds. It was the best course, youth or adult, any of us had ever taught. Because Romans, which is heavy lifting at some points, speaks 
to where children are. Okay. There is no more urgent place for the book of Romans than in junior high school. Because junior high school is nothing but judgment all day long. Okay. So let's don't be afraid. Let's don't be nervous. We'll probably make mistakes. I certainly did. About taking a theology of grace and talking about these things substantively with them, modeling it for them, and then living it out. I think if we can do that, they'll still seek identity in some other things, just like I do and just like probably everybody else does because it's a sinful and fallen world and that's what we're going to do. But we will always, and more importantly, they will always be able to come back to the fundamental identity so that when you're not around and they're in college or they're working through things in their marriage or in their first job and you really have no ability to help, they'll be fine because they're not dependent on you or anything else for their identity except Jesus Christ. Okay, now, here endeth the lesson. That, that's, that's, all, that's, that's as much as an old guy can really talk and stand up and <laughs> want, right? So, but any, I mean, any questions? We've got, we got some time, so any questions? And, and if you don't agree with it, because some people don't actually agree with, with some of this or all of this, okay? So if you have any kind of concerns about it, um, and Cameron won here to rein me in, so I may have said things that were off the reservation, so to speak. Right. You know, that's going to depend a lot on the child. I mean, God obviously creates each child, you know, differently. Um, and I, I never found, and Elizabeth may have some views on this, but I mean, I I never found that there was like one particular tool that seemed to work better than another because I was doing something different. One thing, though, is um, you know, this is too important to sort of kind of give up. And so kind of, I was always quite insistent. We were actually, you know, no, that, you know, a nod is not enough. I need, I need words in the English language, <laughs> you know, proceeding from your mouth. Okay. Um, so I think um, insistence is one thing. Uh, this, is, this is too important, and we, we can't, you know, we really can't just leave it at that. Um, and I think that, uh, coming back to it, you know, it's like when you got a, it's like when you got a, it's like when you got a witness, anybody's a lawyer, you got a witness and you get, and you ask a question, you get an answer you don't like, you kind of go away for a little while and then you come back and see if, the, see if the guy will, you know, screw up and answer it the way you want him to. So you can, you know, if, if you're really getting that pushback, just kind of come back because the situation will present itself again, over, over and over. But what I, see a lot I think is because there's so much other stuff going on in your life it's just so easy to, to say well I guess it's pushback or whatever and just I'm just going to leave it and we'll try it again next Sunday but then the same thing happens next Sunday
you know, the relationship that we're building with them, are we, is the only time we spend with them questioning, and we're just, you know, we want these answers, but where is the, is there a relationship there to begin with? Have we spent time with them in doing things that they enjoy doing? Have we been with them? Are we building trust and caring for them so that they feel the trust and the freedom to, you know, maybe not every time you ask, but they're not just getting questions all the time, but there's a relationship there mm-hmm. that's been built from just spending time together and, and not just yeah, I mean, well, that's a whole, that's a whole nother layer that if the, for example, if, if the relationship is insufficient or damaged or something, then that's, that makes this even more challenging. Um, but even there, you can, you can, we can hear amazing things like, like you're, if you ever drive, you know, carpool, Elizabeth's probably thinking, when the hell did you ever drive carpool? Right? <laughs> but, 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 um, you know, but you got a bunch. You know, you got a you got a bunch of kids, and it's like you don't exist. They're like you're driving, and they start saying all this stuff to each other that they would never say like directly to you. You know, it's like you're it's like you're a Russian surf, and you're just driving, and you don't you don't matter. Those are great opportunities to engage. Once you kind of get over the innate horror of what they're saying, you know, to to engage theologically, you know, once you get back home, that I heard, you know, I heard you and Billy arguing about this or or that, you know, what what is that about, you know, is that is that does that show up in the Bible somewhere? We ever heard that in Sunday school before. Um, the same way, and again, this goes to maybe the relation, the pre-existing relationship. But lots of bad things happen, unfortunately, to children, pre-adolescents, adolescents. And um, sometimes that comes up at the dinner table or otherwise, you know, substance abuse, sex, you know, drugs, that kind of, that kind of stuff. Those are tremendous opportunities to talk about identity and grace because those are things that are really identity substitutes, right? Drugs, porn, sex, what I mean, those are, those are, those are, those are identity substitutes. And those things, when, when those issues come up, or they, or you get an announcement from the, you know, from, from the school about something, or they got signed some policy or whatever, those are great opportunities to talk about, not the policy, and in a sense, not even the unfortunate kid that, you know, is the subject of conversation, but about identity and about you know, you, Billy, my kid, whatever, right? Um, I think one thing as an adult that's hard, and in a small group with Jay Menendez, we talked about it, about, you know, we can have incredible blessings and be very fortunate on our own, and how do you balance that with the gospel? And she kind of said, as long as there's a tension there, that means you're thinking about the right things. You know, how do you balance nice home, nice blessings with, what the gospel says is most important. How would you answer that for children? I mean, when you're teaching your children, you know, we live in a very safe neighborhood. We're blessed with this, this, and this, but this is not the most important thing. And how do you balance that with, um, we also want you to be successful. I mean, right. I, th- I think, and again, somebody else may have different, I mean, to me, that goes back to the modeling piece of it, not the, not the telling piece of it. That is, I mean, because they're watching us for clues about 
what value we ascribe to which things. Um, and and I, and I want to be clear too. I mean, most of the things that you know I was talking about are by themselves good things. Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong about. I mean, I mean, I mean, Jackson went to D1. I mean, there's, there's not, these things are not bad by themselves. None of this stuff is bad by itself. Good grades are good things, right? Not not a bad thing. And so one way to try to you know help that structure is, you know, a nice house is a good thing. A safe neighborhood is a good thing. You know, nice clean clothes are good things, and they are blessings because there are millions of people who have none of those things. You know, so those, you know, those are great things. And that God has situated people who have more of those things than we do, and He has situated people who have fewer than those things that we do. And you know that that is His will, but His call to us is to identify with His Son Jesus first and foremost. But it's but I think it's much more modeling than telling, because yeah. when you tell, they kind of don't believe you. Dad, you just got the fancy new Mercedes. What are you talking about? You know, you know, you're, you're clearly identifying with you know Mercedes Benz, right? Not Jesus Christ. So it's much more the the modeling than the than the telling. I think. Yeah. So something that I've become Stacy and I have become convicted of, and there's a good bit of research on with affluence and mass poverty. There's a there's a commonality and it's lack of self confidence among children. The causation obviously is different from it, but you know one of the things that we talk about is we as parents, and I think you know I, I'll put myself as the greatest center of this. If our child wants to take on something, like if they decide they want to learn how to play golf, you know, and you they get really excited about golf. Jack, you wouldn't do this since you have no hobbies, but uh, right, right. You know, for those we would. You know, you go, you get them outfitted, they get the hat, the little ball marker, the shirt, right. the pants, everything. And right. then they get out on the first tee, and you say, okay, let's learn how to play golf. So they stand there, first swing, don't even make contact. Second swing, they get it, you know, 20 yards off to the left. You know, if, if there were no women in here, I'd say they don't get it to the ladies' tees. Right, right. So then we as parents have this habit, we come up. Don't say anything. Tee up a ball, rip one 275 right down the middle of the fairway, and turn to our child and say, that's your tee shot. How does that make them feel? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We do that over and over and over and over. And, you know, having a nice house and having a, you know, having all that, I think can just exacerbate that problem. And so it's great to hear, you know, that it's, to me, it's all about culture. And it comes down to what you talked about at the how you how you discuss this at the dinner table you know how you what what is your identity is your identity in Christ or is your identity wrapped up in what you do is your identity that Jesus is your savior or is your identity in that my son's you know getting really good at sports mm-hmm. and you know I mean I'm a guy we, we all put it back on ourselves God if my dad had just pushed me a little bit harder I'd be that too you know or look at him you know a lot of people come up and speak to me at Sporting events—that's awesome. Which has he his what he's doing and what you do mutually exclusive. But it's fascinating. I'm really grateful that we're talking about this because I think there's a lot that can come out of this um, in terms of the cultures that we're creating in our families and how we articulate that back to our children. Right. Um, and there's nothing wrong. And there's nothing wrong with modeling the drive by itself. 
but it 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 goes back to the context and the priorities in which we put it, and also sometimes uh you know there are some gender differences. The gospel is gender neutral, right? I mean, the gospel that doesn't matter, but but sometimes the way you know boys and girls approach these things and the the different you know pressures, the other identity options that, that boys are given versus the other identity options girls are given, you know, differ sometimes. Um, but that difference does give you, uh, give us a chance to, you know, talk with them in that particular, in that particular place where they are, you know, which I think is also important. We got to remember, no matter how sophisticated we think we are, no matter how theologically grounded we think we are, we've got to go to junior high school, not to try to bring the junior high to us. We have, in other words, we've got a kind of like a suffering person, you know, I mean, the ministry's only really effective if you can get to the suffering instead of trying to bring the suffering person back to you, the person of health. Same kind of thing here, I think. The theology of grace has got to live where they are, kind of not where we'd, we'd like them to be, if that, if that makes sense. What else? Everybody agrees with this? It's amazing. What other, what other practical problems? Another practical problem is people ask, um, "What if I don't know the answer? What if I what if I actually engender this wonderful <clears throat> discussion?" And they say, "Well, what about you know um, what about the bodily bodily resurrection, or or what about election, or you know, or what about predestination? You know, all this kind of thing." And, and people say, "Well, I don't really want to get into the discussion because I don't. I'm afraid I will." Show my ignorance. I will be. I will not have the the answer. My take is, and people may dis- disagree with this. That's great for two reasons. Well, three reasons. One, you actually you've actually got the identity discussion going, which is a huge thing. Two, they are obviously answering the correct. I mean, they're asking you know a correct question. I mean, they're actually a real question. And then three, they may stick with it when they see our ignorance. Okay. In other words, when they say, when we say, well, you know what? I'm not completely sure. I'm going to have to go figure that out. I mean, usually the handiest thing, you know, and I do, and we, we kind of forget about it. But in the back of the book of Common Prayer, there's the 39 articles. Now, over time, these have kind of gotten relegated to the the historical documents of the church section, which 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 makes it sound like mm, they kind of like you know the Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence under glass or something, um, but that's where the answers are. I mean, they're they're actually very clear. It's written in somewhat you know Rococo language, uh, and there are sort of plain English you know, translations, so to speak, of them. But the basic answers about this stuff, you know, are in the 39 articles. So that might be, if you want another piece of homework, that might be a piece of homework. Go home and actually, if you haven't read them, or hadn't read them in a while, um, read them. And you may not, you, you may be yourself uncomfortable with some of them. Um, um, but it, the 39 articles, they've got all the hard ones. Original sin. Um, uh, the fact that good works without Jesus are worthless in God's eyes. The hard stuff. Election, predestination, you know, so that may be one thing to, to kind of get ourselves going because that was something, you know, we always kind of worried about is what, you know, we, we won't have the answer. 
you know, if we're going to do all this, we want to have the answer in the right, you know, in the right answer as well. Okay, so that might be another piece of homework. What else? What else? What about the expectation of forgiveness as a path to do whatever you want to do? Ah, no uh, uh, an ancient, an ancient, an ancient <laughs> problem. Um, um, there, you know, I guess there's two answers. One is th- there is always that risk, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always a chance that that a child, just like an adult, can try to say, "Well, you know, I've got, uh, I've got a, I've got, a, I, I've got a free pass, and mom and dad aren't going to come down on me about this, or I can, I can do, I can do X, or I can do Y, and it's not." Even by their sort of stick in the mud lights, it's not going to imperil my soul, something like that, right? Um, so, is that a risk? I think it's a theoretical risk. I don't know if it's a practical risk because isn't the answer that if we really get grace, that's not the way we're going to look at grace. If we really get grace, we're going to be grateful for grace, and we're going to be that much more likely to ident- to find our identity, you know, in in Christ. I mean, and as we've all heard, you know, people have been going years and years. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like the law is to be jettisoned. It's not like we're saying, you know, this that it's sort of, you know, um, adolescent or, orgies are the order of the day now, whatever. You know, it's not like we're saying there aren't standards, blah, blah, blah. But that is, you know, what's called the third use of the law. That's the law keeps order. That's what keeps classes moving, changing at the high school, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but what we probably need to focus on, if we've actually internalized the gospel of grace, and if that's what we really believe, then it's incumbent upon us to move forward because if they get it, then ultimately they're going to conform their identity to Jesus, or, or I guess technically he will conform their identity to, to, to him anyway. And there's no, there's no real downside because if we're unsuccessful, in helping them get to that point, they're going to be in a lot worse situation than thinking they're going to be able to get away with something. So it's it's it's, it's it, I get the concern, and that's an old concern, and it's it's a legitimate one. But at the end of the day, it's worth it. At the end of the day, it's worth it. What else? Exactly. I mean, there's a place for law. Law, law. law is what, I mean, that's, that's Romans again, right? Law illuminates sin. That's how we know it's sin. Yeah. So. God disciplines those who loves. Correct. So there's not a choice, like you just said, there's not a choice between forgiveness. And I think you move the conversation away from, I'm going to punish you. I think it's more discipline and just the natural consequences of some of this stuff. And point out to them that you are forgiven, I love you, but I am disciplining you. Because I love you, uh, 
because it's not to punish you to make you feel bad. It's better. It's to modify your behavior for your own good going forward. Right. And you know, it's you know, like my dad used to say, "Boy, he folded back his belt." You know, it's gonna hurt you a lot worse than it's gonna hurt me. But you know, I think you know that we're a little more enlightened now. <laughs> but it's a difference between. Correct. And a great point to end on. Be sure to come to the next four classes because this is a very fruitful and gospel driven class. Thank y'all. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, We hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.